Thank you. What a beautiful song. Before I begin this morning in our message, I um, want to um, provide some disclaimers, and then we'll pray. I believe that the chapter or the section of Scripture that we're about to cover this morning is one of the most important passages of Scripture that we'll we'll turn to. I believe that the topic that we're going to discuss this morning is as important for us to understand as anything because it makes sense of so much. I'm confident that I'm ill-equipped to adequately preach this message. I don't say that with false humility. I say it with trepidation. I also believe that the same the same battle, the same temptations, the same struggle that's going on in the text is also would be going on this morning. In other words, there will be a tempter setting in your mind, doubting, creating some dialogue in our minds of, well, this is, I mean, uh, that seems a little odd or or whatever. So with all of that said, I'm going to pray. And what I would like to ask you to do, I typically ask if someone would, would pray for the preaching of God's Word. But this morning, I'm just going to ask that you pray too. And I hope that happens when we pray. But that you pray as well. Um, and that you would pray specifically that God would speak. Uh, if If there's a talking snake in our, in our text, and if God's used a donkey uh, and spoke through a donkey, God can, God can speak through me. That's my hope. Um, but with all sincerity, I, I am asking you to pray because my heart's desire this morning is that we will leave this place knowing God better, understanding what's at risk, and having the hope of the gospel. And so with that said, um, let's pray. And you pray for me. Pray that God's word will be clearly um, explained. And let's pray that God meets us here this morning. Lord, in the quietness of this room, I don't have to ask you to be here. You are here. You've never left us or forsaken us. You are always with us. And Father, as we come to your word, I'm cognizant that there is so much fighting for our attention. Our minds have a million other things that they're consumed with. The forces of evil would choose to already discount the text but I believe Lord it's imperative that you speak to us through 
the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that Christ is glorified and that we honor you. Lord, I'm confident that there is no way we will hear anything if you don't help us. So meet us here this morning. Help all of us see ourselves in the text. Help all of us see the hope of Jesus and help all of us rest that even though that we are prone to wonder, you will hold us fast. You are the place that we can fix our gaze upon. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we turn to Genesis 3, I, I was in a conference years ago, and I, I was in, it was in Illinois, and I was there, and I heard Dr. John MacArthur preach. And I don't remember almost anything else about the message, but I do remember what John MacArthur said. And, and I don't even know, I, I, went to, I thought about going and trying to find this, but when it came to Genesis 3, he said, this is, this is imperative that you understand Genesis 3, for it explains really everything. And you've heard me say this before, and I apologize for overusing the illustrations or the analogies, but, but we all have lenses or glasses or some of you may be old enough to remember the word spectacles. We all have spectacles that we look through. We all have something we look through to look at our world. And Dr. MacArthur there at that conference said, what you do with Genesis 3 will determine how you approach life. And I don't remember his, his quotes. I don't remember exactly what he said, but I'm going to try to give you the impression of the words that remain for me with me, it has to be 15, oh, maybe 20 years ago. Probably 15 years ago. And he says that you have two ways to look at the world. You can believe the story of God's word, the scriptures, and believe that there is a creator God, and he created the world in perfection, and then some event happened and we are subsequently on a downhill slide until God does something else and redeems us and restores us. And that's the biblical narrative. That we were created in the image of God, that God created us in perfection, and that something happened. There was something that came into the story, that something came into this world, and it changed everything. Or, you can believe that we began or started as a bunch of muck, just a glob of random stuff, and by a lot of change, a chance and happenstance, all of this muck and mire and stuff ordered itself together and we are evolving into perfection. There's really only two ways to explain the universe. We either started as something perfect, something happened, and we're fallen, or we started as a bunch of random muck, and by chance, it all has been shaken up, and we're evolving into something perfect. Over the last several weeks, exploring the first few chapters of Genesis, the book of beginnings, we see 
that the Scripture, our Bibles, teach us very plainly that there is a Creator, God, Elohim. In the first verses of, of our Bible, in the English Bible, we see the words, in the beginning, God. The Bible tells us that God created everything on our earth out of nothing, and the Bible says He called it good. We've seen the Bible tells us that the origin of humankind were not some form of evolutionary happenstance, but rather sacred scripture details for us in these first two chapters the, very, the account of the very first man and the very first woman as a creation by their creator. And after it happened, God said it was very good. We see that there's a perfect place called the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve have been given the divine mandate to rule and have dominion over this creation, to be fruitful and multiply, to enjoy the blessing of this institution of marriage, as Brother David spoke about last week. To enjoy those perfect unions with each other and with their creator, God. The point is, in this place, at, in this paradise, Adam and Eve had everything necessary to glorify God. The point is, they had everything necessary to glorify God. They were experiencing only good, because only good is what they had. They had the perfect will of God. If you've kept your Bibles open, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and 17, there is a commandment, though. God said, in this perfect place, in this perfect union with him, in this perfect relationship between Adam and Eve, God said, then he took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's the creation ordinance of work. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This morning we come to an essential doctrine in the Christian faith. It's essential in understanding our world and more specifically in understanding the gospel, the good news, what Jesus came for. This morning, I believe we're turning our hearts towards the saddest moment in human history. This is the saddest moment in human history. We're focusing our attention on what commonly or theologians refer to as the fall or the fall of man or the fall of mankind. This is the place where we explain the entrance of evil into our world. This is the place that God begins to describe to us our depravity. This is the beginning of our sinful condition. This chapter points out that it's not only the condition of Adam and Eve, but it's our condition. Look with me to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 24, and the way this chapter ends. David spoke about this. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in verse 25, it says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Don't overlook that. Don't miss that phrase. This is a picture of perfection, of a transparent relationship between man and woman and between man, woman, and their God. This is how chapter 2 ends. It's perfect. But we know that's not how it stayed. We can see that by pulling out our phones and going to our news app or picking up a paper if we still do that or turning on our TV. We see some of these things that we just can't explain. There's activities and actions and diseases and all that stuff. And how come it happens to us? And I'm proposing to you the Bible teaches that all the bad stuff in the world begins with the next verse. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Notice the language that God had made. As we begin to look at this passage, let me say that we're once again to believe the world would teach. There's people that would say that, that this is a myth. This is a parable. This is just a story to explain how evil got here. And if I could stand on the chair and scream anything, I would scream this, don't buy that. This, there is no reason not to believe, and the theologians for thousands of years have understood that this is the historical account of what we believe actually happened. Yes, it's weird. Yes, it's strange. But I believe with all that's in me that Here's what happened. The very first thing I'd like to look at is the serpent. Was it a real serpent? Yeah. I mean, this was paradise. There was all kinds of things, strange things happening with Adam and Eve. They were, this was new to them. And so here comes this serpent, a reptile. The Bible also uses the same word as synonymous with dragon. It's found in Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 20, 20, verse 2. Satan is referred to throughout Scripture as a serpent or a dragon, some kind of reptile. It is a reptile. God had created reptiles. There's no reason for us to believe that God didn't create reptiles like he created everything else. And it is Satan personifying himself as this reptile. Who is Satan? We know some about Satan, but not a lot. But we know, we know enough. We know that Satan was a fallen angel. He's the supernatural enemy of God and man. The Bible clearly says that he was more crafty or more cunning than any other animal. He had some sense of of a supernatural kind of being. Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah 14 says that he was 
a fallen angel, the morning star. Ezekiel 28 also. Revelation 12 says that when he fell, he took a third of the angels with him. So Satan is the one speaking through this animal who's more wise and more intelligent than any other animal. The point so much to get wrapped up is whether there's a slithering, forked tongue, cartoon character image of Satan. The, the point is there's, there's an animal. There's a reptile. Satan's speaking and Satan's talking to Eve. And what he's trying to do is to solicit Eve and Adam into disobeying God. He has one goal. He wants to corrupt God's good creation. And there's something I want us to be cautious about because I hear people say it. And I've been guilty of talking about it this way before, sometimes myself. Satan and God are not co-equal. They are not a yin and a yang. They are not two eternal powers of the universe. It's not, it's not Superman versus his arch enemy. That's a false teaching called dualism. God is the only one sovereign. He's the only one who's eternal. He's the only one who's omnipotent. Satan is an instrument, or Satan, Satan is merely a creation of God. And I don't understand that, so don't ask me. But he is a created being. He's a finite being. He's a limited being. He's a temporal being. He doesn't have all kinds of power. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not equal with God. He is not some force of good and evil, but rather he is the enemy of God that's seeking to bring rebellion to God's good creation. That's the serpent. So what is his strategy? There's a couple of verses I'd like for us to talk about. John 8, 44. You can just note it or remember it. Here's what Jesus said about the devil. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's making a comment. And he says, you are the father. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. Notice this is how he speaks of Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. And this is what Jesus says about Satan. For he's a liar and the father of lies. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded and watchful, your adversary, the devil, another word used for this being, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. Brothers and sisters, beloved, there is an enemy of God and of God's people. He is a real being. He is the father of all lies. He is the instigator of evil into this world. And he has one, one motive. And if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, he wants to destroy you and me.
and this church and this world and God's people and the glory of God. So in our text, we quickly move to the next thing. And here's his strategy always. He's going to attack two things. He's always going to attack the Word of God and the character of God. Satan will always attack these two things. He's always going to attack the Word of God, and he's always going to attack the character of God. Now, I didn't realize this was going to be this fast. Let me put, a, let me put some pause. I'm gonna, I want to do, do some advertisement. I want to make a commercial. On Wednesday night, we're coming up, and I think that most of you should have received a little book um, in the mail about expository preaching. Why would you even have gotten a book about preaching? Why would you even want to read it? Jake did a great job of explaining it, and this is not even in anywhere in my sermon notes. I just feel led to say this. And you've heard me say this. And I'm not going to ever apologize for saying this. As a matter of fact, there are men who literally were burnt at the stake for saying what I'm about to say. The one thing that Satan hates is the Word of God. Because in John chapter 1, Jesus is described as the Logos, the Word of God. He's the Word of God in flesh. Whether you come Wednesday night or not, whether you want to talk about preaching or not, but the thing the church has that no other place on this planet has, the church, this church, the the church with the capital C, the universal church of Jesus Christ, the true church, has something that that we cannot compete against entertainment. We, we, can't, we can't be fancy enough to draw people in. I used to say, if we want to have a big church and attendance is all we wanted, there's lots of ways to fill this room. We can, keep, we, can, we can start having drinks to flow and free food. I mean, we can get all kinds of entertainment. We can get a comedian up here, right? I mean, we can do that, right? And we can, we can just offer all these kinds of things. But let me tell you what the world does not have. The world does not have the word of God that gives life until dead people so they can have a spiritual new life and birth in Jesus Christ. And that's what Satan wants to, to just destroy. And so the reason we're going to talk about that is because Jake is right. You should be very concerned about who's speaking about The Word of God, because it gives us life. Back to our text. Here's here's the way he does it. There's a pattern. In verse 1, notice what he, the Satan, says. "Did Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The very first question, David Robertson, was not asked by me, was asked by Satan, you'd be glad to know, and here it is in the Bible. David is always telling me I ask more questions than him and my great-grandmother. But I do ask a lot of questions, because I'm curious. But this is what Satan did. Did you know? He didn't do anything. He just said, hey, did God really say? 
The questioning of God. This is how temptation comes. Did God really say you shouldn't do that? Did God really say that's wrong? That's the way he does it. That's the way Satan looks like he's a good guy, so to speak. He's being the angel of light. He's just saying, hey, just for clarification, is this what God said? And then notice in verse 4 what happens. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So he contradicts God. She answers him. Notice she answers him in verse 2. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And he says, don't believe God. You won't die. So he contradicts God. And then in verse 5, go with me. He says, for God knows what you can eat of. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. So in other words, he says, the thought is that the imagery of good is beyond what God's going to give you. And what he's saying is, God's holding out on you. There's so much more if you just follow me. God's just holding out on you, keeping stuff. You deserve it. It's like McDonald's, you deserve a break today. All temptation, all temptation starts with the idea that we have the right to evaluate what God has said or required. Do you get it? All temptation starts with the fact that we are in the position of preeminence and priority and prominence. So he begins to question God. He begins to contradict God. He, he begins to surpass what God says. He said, God's holding out with on you. And then finally, the result is in verse 6, the woman said, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and there was delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Turn with me to 1 John. It's right here. It's right towards the back, end of the back of your Bibles. 1 John chapter 2. Verse 16, I'll start in verse 15 and read through the verse 17. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world. And I like the way the New King James uses this, but it's the same word. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And the new King James, and I'm probably the King James, probably says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Lust of flesh, lust of eyes, pride of life. Let's look in our temptation. Notice in verse 6 of Genesis Chapter 3, the lust of the flesh, the tree was good for food. The lust of the eye, it was the light to the eyes, the pride of life. The tree was, going to, was to be desired to make one wise. In other words, you're going to be like God. There's a pattern here. Flesh, eyes, and pride. 
flesh, eyes, and pride. We see this again, and I'm not going to apologize. It's good for you to turn in your Bibles. Go to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 4. The second Adam is being tempted. Jesus, he's referred to in Scripture as the second Adam. He's been taken to the wilderness. This same serpent, the same tempter, this same devil, the same one wanting to destroy God in God's word, in now the Son of God. I want you to just, we'll go through three verses real quick. Verse three, the lust of the flesh. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. He's appealing to his fleshly desire. The lust of the eyes, verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Look, Jesus, look all around. This is all. Finally, verse 9, the pride of life. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Prove it. Satan's strategy is always the same. He attacks the word of God. He twists it creates doubt that way we don't defend it so doubt and discouragement and we don't defend it it leads to our disobedience he also attacks the character of god if god knows god knows if you'll eat it you'll be like him god don't want you to be like him he's 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 not really the good guy that you thought he is he maligns god's character God's holding out on you. God's keeping you from that. God can't really be trusted. God's too restrictive. God isn't a loving God. How many times have I heard people say that about why is there evil in the world? If God's a loving God, why does God do that? Why would God not give you what you wanted? So the serpent tempts us in that way. I'm not going to finish this message but I want to talk just a minute about sin. The entrance of what we call sin comes in this world in verse 3, really. It's really the place that separates us from God. It's the moment that Eve began to distrust God. The physical act of the sin was manifested in verse 6 where she took and ate and gave it to her husband and he was right there with her. He didn't say anything about it. Notice what Eve's doing. She's been planted here. She's in a perfect relationship with God. Everything perfect's been given to her. She could not have asked for anything more. God's giving her his best. Here comes this, this serpent, this dragon, this reptile of some sort talking And rather than saying, hey, I don't know who you are or where you come from. What's going on? Could you tell me a little bit more about you? She doesn't do that at all. She just immediately begins to distrust God and to start doubting God. She's not defending God's goodness. She's not affirming his glory. She's not talking about his majesty. She's actually saying she has no desire to, to do that. She's not saying to this Creature, hey, God's only got good in mind for me. Do you you start seeing yourself here? Anybody? You see how, how, how this works in our own life? She's not taking offense to the wicked insults of God's character. 
For the first time, she had a thought that God wasn't perfect, that God didn't care. She was a, a being that was, had been made perfect and given everything she needed to re- maintain a right relationship with God. But she freely chose to despise God's goodness and distrust Him. And brothers and sisters, that's what all sin is. It's believing that Satan, Satan's lie that there's something out there better than what God has for you. And I think this is where I'll end. We'll do something else to finish the sermon, but that's, that's what sin is. It's to believe the lie of Satan that if you just had that, it would be better. If you just had something more than what God is giving you, more fun, more joy, more delight, if you would just believe There's something better than God. Satan finally got her to believe that this God that she was in perfect relationship with was narrow and limiting and restrictive. And she needed to abandon his plan if she was going to be fulfilled. And so sin enters the world. Look with me in verse 3. She does something that I think we all tend to do. I'm not trying to trick anybody. It takes a careful reading of verse 3. I read to you verse 17. There's a hint. When Satan said to her, when the serpent said, did God say you shouldn't eat of the tree? Look at her reply. She says... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Notice the next words. Neither shall you touch it. God never said that. God never said that at all. It's a complete distortion of the truth of God. How many times is that like us? Someone tells us we can't do this, and we say we just, ex- we just add to it and exaggerate it. It's in order to make God look so like something he's not. Brothers and sisters, this is not where I intended to end this message, but I'm going to end it here. There is a real Satan. He's a created, he's not powerful. Don't you ever buy into that. He wants to destroy us. He has a strategy, the same temptation for Eve and Adam, or Adam and Eve is the same temptation for us. I promise you, if you just start looking where you start to falter, you will see the same pattern, whether you go through the pattern of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, whether you go through the pattern of, of, of questioning God, doubting God, disobeying God. It's the same thing. Our problem is not, let, let, let me end here. Our greatest problem is not a physical ailment. Our greatest problem, David, I, I don't know, that, that quote's perfect. Our greatest problem is not some kind of political solution. Our greatest problem is not a political problem. 
Our greatest problem is not an economic problem. Our greatest problem is not, is not a physical problem. If we could live another, if we could live 200 years, what good would that be if we're living it outside of a relationship with a holy God who created us? But yet, even in, even in churches, we're consumed with, and, it's, and please don't, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I've needed prayer for healing. You prayed for me for healing. I'm healed because I believe you prayed. I'm a recipient, reciprocal, recipient of that. I, I'm saying that. But my greatest need is the cure for my sin. The thing that separates me from a relationship with the holy God. My disobedience, my rebellion. And the good news is there was a second Adam, Jesus Christ, God's holy son, who came in and lived the life that the first Adam couldn't. We'll come to it later, but there's judgment. God says, if you eat of this, you shall die. We shall be separated from God for all of eternity. And God said, I'll give you a gift in my son that if you repent and believe of him, you shall have life everlasting. Dear friends, do you know this Jesus? I didn't ask you how long you've come to this church. It does not matter. I'm not asked you how many times you've taught vacation Bible school or how many Sunday schools you attended or how many community events that you've helped or how many good deeds you've done or that you've been a nice person. I don't care about any of that. I care about do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and have you bowed your knee to Him because one day this all will burn up. One day it will all go away. One day we will die. Tom says it, and he said it multiple times. We die between Sunday school lessons. We are dying. And if you've never bowed your knee before a holy God and said, I can't save myself, but you can save me, and repented of your sin, then you're as doomed as anybody. And the reason I'm so emphatic is because I believe that the thing the world does not have is what I just said, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, as I knew I would be so feeble in my attempt to explain it. Holy Spirit, speak to us as we sing if there's anyone that you've not called to yourself this morning that, that is lost, I pray, Lord, that they would come to know you as your child and that you would be their father. Speak to us, Lord. Thank you for sharing us the greatest problem we have is sin and that there is a hope and an answer. I pray this in Jesus' name.